My name is Patrick Mbogwa, and I'm one of the elders uh, at KVC, and I'm happy to see you all and to be before you. This morning, I continue in the series, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth, and I'm looking at the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I want to start my message uh, in a different way, with an English lesson. The teachers can forgive me if I get uh, the setup wrong, but I thought this would be a nice refresher course for those of us who are last in school many decades ago. So I have a quiz. The first one is a bit cheeky because it involves Pastor Craig, but he's away, so there's little he can do to me. So there's a quiz there. Fill in the blanks from the passages, from the choices given below. Pastor Craig is a senior pastor of current Vineyard Church. Is it, it wears spectacles and sports a goatee? He wears none of the above or all of them. He wears spectacles and sports a goatee. One of his, not it, one of his favorite hangouts is a certain restaurant housed at a venue that is primarily for nourishing vehicles. For, is it it? Is it him? Is it for none of, none of the above? For it, there is not a better item in that restaurant than a beverage that has coastal connotations. What's the word, number three? Him, for him. Given an opportunity, I think Dash would preach from the book of Nehemiah every Sunday. He would preach from the book of Nehemiah every Sunday. Luckily for us, Dash has better sense than that. He has better sense than that. Well done. Next quiz is a passage I've picked from the Bible. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that Dash may abide with you forever. Is that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know for he dwells with you and will be in you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And number seven, he will testify of me. To me or to you, Babu. Now, the reason I chose to start with these quizzes is because as I've been preparing this message, I felt that perhaps one impediment to our interacting with the Holy Spirit could be lack of clarity on the identity of the Holy Spirit. And I want that to be at the forefront of everyone's mind as we begin. The Holy Spirit is not it. Uh, sometimes you'll hear somebody speaking and they say, referring to the Holy Spirit, it did this, it did that. The Holy Spirit is not it. The Holy Spirit is He. He is not inanimate. He is not an object. He is not a figment of your imagination or a thought. He is not an illusion. He's not an influence. He's not a power. 
He is not a force. He is a person. So this morning, I'm talking about a person, the person of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you who is a person, just speaking a few verses from the Bible. He has knowledge. In 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 11, we read, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So he has knowledge. He has a mind. Romans 8, 27. Now he who searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. He has a mind. He has a will. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, But to one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individual as he wills. And he can be grieved. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So he's a person. So we are talking about a person. And I want you to keep that in your mind and try and visualize the person we are talking about. And the Bible tells us that just as a person, he can be lied to. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5.3. They lied to the Holy Spirit when they said they had sold all. He can be insulted. Hebrews 10.29 says you insult the Holy Spirit when you take grace for granted. He leads us. That's Romans 8.14. He restrains us. In Acts 16.6, we read the Holy Spirit restraining some of the apostles from going to certain places because he didn't think that was the time. He speaks to us. That's in Revelation 2.7. And in 1 Corinthians 2.10, he searches our hearts. And so this morning, if you've never met him, perhaps you've always met it, and this morning you're meeting him, I want to allow you to meet him in a new way, and let me introduce you to a very, very important person. When you go through the Bible, there are many, many verses that talk about the Holy Spirit in both the Old and the New Testament. But I've chosen John 16, 5, 15 as my main text uh, this morning, where Jesus is talking to his disciples about the Holy Spirit. He says this, John 16, 5 to 15. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. 
He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. This passage is of special note, at least in my mind, particularly because of verse 7 where Jesus tells them that it's advantageous for them that he goes because then the helper, the Holy Spirit, will be sent to them by Jesus. And critical for me is the description of the Holy Spirit being a helper. A helper comes to help the one who needs help. For the English teachers, that's not a good description of the word help. A helper comes to help the one who needs help. Otherwise, if they didn't need help, there'd be no need for a helper. But Jesus is recognizing that his disciples in his absence will really need help to go forward. And so he sends them the helper by way of the Holy Spirit. And it's true because you read in that passage that Jesus tells them that sorrow has filled their hearts on hearing that he's going away because they don't know how they will go on without him. In John 14, 26, Jesus says, I will pray the Father and he'll give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. In John 15, 26, he tells them, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And so as you begin meeting this person, I want to ask you to ask yourself, do you think you're one of those people who Jesus is talking about who actually need a helper? Do you think you're in need of help? Because I think if you do, today's message will be much more meaningful to you because the helper will then come and speak with you. So where will this helper be as he's helping you? In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, Paul says this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So the helper, the Holy Spirit, resides in you. He's meant to help you from inside you, from within you. How does this happen? Revelation 3.20 gives the answer. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. This is Jesus speaking. The Holy Spirit resides in you once you heed the call of Jesus. When you open that door and invite Jesus in as your Lord and Savior, then the Holy Spirit comes in to be your helper. And I want to say that the helper does not come to force to help you. He requires the one who is being helped, the one who is helpless, in other words, to go to him and ask him, help me, I need you. But you can only seek his help if you're convinced that the helper has the help that you need and that you can't succeed without it. 
The Holy Spirit is not a badge of honor. I used to be in a church which used to say, once you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes, done. You and him, story finished. He's there, present, continuous. He's not a badge of honor or a tick-the-box kind of thing. As we sit before him this morning, my hope is that for anyone who believes this, that your eyes will be open to the life that the Holy Spirit wants to welcome you into. Only if you will allow him. So who is this helper? And I'm afraid that sometimes I think we think the helper is like the help we call helpers at home. You know how that word, house help? I don't like that word, by the way. I think sometimes we think he's like a house help. And the tragic thing that happens in many of our homes is that the house help ranks at the bottom of the strata. Everybody else is above the house help. They are at your beck and call. They must obey all questions, all commands without question. And when you think they are disobedient, you fire them. But this helper whom Jesus is talking about in John 16 is not this kind of helper. He doesn't come, the Holy Spirit doesn't come like Aladdin's genie in the lamp, which if you rub three times, he comes out, gives you three wishes and fulfills them. That is not the helper we are talking about. This helper, the Holy Spirit, and you'll, you see that in the passage you read in John 16, comes in to help you achieve his eternal purposes because his person, his God the Father and God the Son, means that the helper is actually your Lord. So he's a helper who's coming to help you submit to him because he is your Lord. Does that sound like a paradox? He's called a helper, but he's your boss. He knows you can't submit to him. So he comes to help you submit to him. He resides in you to help you, if you'll allow him, to identify with Paul in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, or I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is why the helper is coming. He understands that you have no capacity to submit to him and so gives you the way to submit to the Lordship of God and live a life of testifying of him. If you look at John 16, 8 to 11, we read that, and when he has come, Brian, please go back to John 16. I think it was my third slide. Just go back. Yeah, there. Incidentally, today I'm feeling very proud. I only have 11 slides. <laughs> I've been working hard to bring down my slides. And the first two, of course, you saw uh, inconsequential. So today I'm actually feeling quite achieved. If you look at verse 8 to 11, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness 
and of judgment. Now, the work I do, convict means found guilty and jailed or fined. But I wondered, it didn't quite feel that you're going to be convicted of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So I did some research on what the word actually convict means in this context and found that it actually means to convince, not to convict, but to convince. So this is what Jesus is saying in these verses about the helper. That he's coming to convince you of sin because they do not believe in me. That the Holy Spirit is keen to convince us that the fall in the Garden of Eden actually happened. And as T.C. told us two weeks ago, the sin was Adam and Eve's um, unbelief concerning what God had instructed them and agreeing with certain lies that if you eat from the fruit, you will not die. So the Holy Spirit wants to convince you that nothing you can do in yourself can remove the stain of sin and its consequences from your life. If he convinces you, then unbelief at what happened at the cross is removed and his salvation is open to you. If you believe that Adam and Eve fell, then you believe that the cross had to happen for your sake. And then if you believe that the cross happened for your sake, then you accept Jesus for what he did at the cross. The Holy Spirit is trying to convince you to get away from sin. Verse 10, convince you of righteousness because I go to my Father and I see you no more. He wants to convince you that once you've accepted his salvation, then his righteousness, where righteousness means an uprightness that always does what is right before God, that that righteousness is your righteousness and that you're no longer condemned, that you have liberty. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he, that is God, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Holy Spirit wants to convince you, you know how you get saved and there's some sin you did 30 years ago that keeps coming back to haunt you, that you sinned. Remember you sinned? Remember you did? Remember you did? The Holy Spirit wants to convince you that because Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you have a clean slate. You are no longer under condemnation. You are free from all the past things that you did. That it's over, it's finished. You're forgiven. He's forgotten even what you did. That's what he wants to do in your life. And then verse 11. Convict of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit then wants to convince you with respect to judgment that there'll be a final day, an end when judgment will be delivered. But it will be delivered to the wicked. Second Peter 3, 7 says this, but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Judgment is coming. And to avoid it, the Holy Spirit wants you to be convinced of this fact. If you know judgment is going to happen, then verse 9 and 10, sin and the cross must become alive in you. 
for the sake of your own life. So this person's motivation, the Holy Spirit's motivation in coming to reside in you is to make sure that the work Jesus did, the cruel price he paid by dying on the cross, is not in vain as far as everyone, you and I, are concerned. That he didn't die in vain. He wants to convince you, because he loves you so much, that please, 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 sin was there, but the cross came. And if you accept what happened at the cross, then you avoid judgment. For me, incidentally, I almost finished my sermon there because I couldn't move away from the fact that Jesus came and died for me. He didn't need to. But the amazing thing is, he still wants to pursue me to make sure that what he did on the cross is my portion. If, guys, that doesn't blow you away, I'm wasting my time. You need to be blown away. So who is he? Bran. We said he's the helper. John 14, 16. John 15, 26. He is the spirit of truth. John 15, 26. John 16, 13. Incidentally, I told you there are many verses uh, on the Holy Spirit. Uh, the ones you see up there, uh, I think there are 45 verses that I went through uh, from the many. I thought this probably would distill well for our someone today. And just a disclaimer, I am not going to read all of them, don't worry. So from Revelation 3.20 and 1 Corinthians 6.19, we've established that once you hit the knock or the call of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to reside in you as your helper to help you achieve God's purposes because your body, that's in 1 Corinthians 6.19, becomes his temple. So your body is no longer yours. So he's your helper, he's your Lord, but it's not even your body, it's his temple. And so looking at the attribute of him being the spirit of truth means that your life must be a life of truth. Now truth is, nowadays truth is what you want it to be. So for the avoidance of doubt, truth here refers only to biblical truth. It's the truth contained in the word of God unequivocally and undiluted. It's not the fluidity of truth that we are seeing in the world now to suit different circumstances or different persuasions. It is the truth of the word of God. John Stott has written a book, The Incomparable Christ. And I thought this passage, this paragraph will help uh, me to explain uh, this passage on truth. He says this. Yet the fact is that down the centuries of the Christian era, hundreds of different Jesuses have been on offer in the world's religious supermarkets. Some resonate with contemporary culture, but only by manipulating scripture. Others are biblically faithful but culturally alien. Yet others in differing degrees succeed in relating to both scripture and culture. In contrast to the one Lord of the diverse yet united witness of the New Testament, 
the church has displayed a remarkable ingenuity in adapting, shaping, and presenting its own images of Christ. So depending on which church you go to, Christ will be this way, another one will be this way, and because we are talking about the Trinity, it also means the Holy Spirit will be this way, in another church will be this way, in another church will be that way. And so when the helper comes in, he comes to show you and to clarify what his truth is according to his word, since he is the word in John 1.1. 1, 1. So you must seek the helper's help in a world that redefines truth to suit itself and accommodate matters that cannot fit in scriptures pure and simple. One other says that to be led into truth is more than just knowing the truth. It's to be intimately and experientially acquainted with it, to be piously and strongly affected by it. Not only to have a notion of the truth in your heart, but to relish and savor the power of it in your heart so that the truth shines more and more in us. So it's not enough to know the truth. The truth must come alive in your life. But in this world that wants truth to be what it wants to be, the helper will help you to um, immerse yourself in the truth, live the truth, activate it in your life, cover yourself in it, breathe it out, speak it out, hear it out, see the truth, but the truth of the word of God. John 16, 13 says, The spirit of truth will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears from God and Jesus, he will speak. And then that same spirit of truth, we are told in John 15, 26, will testify of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus is much needed in an exceedingly fallen world that wants to decide what it wants to think about the truth. And here's the thing, you can't do it by yourself. You can't testify of Jesus by yourself. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Anytime you say Jesus is Lord, it's not you saying it in your own strength. It's the Holy Spirit helping you. So you can't testify of Jesus if the Holy Spirit is not there. A few weeks ago, I think it was about six weeks ago, I was going for a meeting. Uh, my client was taking over some business and he hadn't been doing very well in terms of presenting himself to, 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 to the party he's taking over. So they'd call for a meeting um, and as I was going for the meeting this morning, I felt I really needed to go in the strength of the Lord. Now, it was a totally commercial business. It wasn't a, um, what did you used to call them? It wasn't a fellowship. It was a commercial business. Everybody, serious face, uh, show me the money. And so when I woke up in the morning, I told my faith, my faith, my wife faith, she's my faith. <laughs> Uh, to really pray that um, the Lord will just go ahead of us 
and that I'll find favor uh, with the other side uh, because they, they really weren't smiling with, with my client. And so I really needed to go and present myself well. But I really felt that the Lord needed to be present in this meeting. And so one of the people who I knew about the meeting, I also called him and told him, please pray about this. Um, I was being accompanied by the transaction advisor who I'd only met once uh, before. All other times we'd talked on phone, so I didn't know much about them. So when I got to the venue, it turned out that we were meeting at the boardroom, the head boardroom of this company, uh, and we were meeting all the who's who in the business. So they told me, you'll sit there, uh, it was a long boardroom. I mean, actually, I've never been in a boardroom that long. I only see them in, in, when I'm watching uh, government business being transacted in boardrooms. So in that boardroom, if you're sitting there, you need a mic for the guy there to hear you. So they told me, go make yourself a cup of tea as we sat down for the meeting. So I go, I'm making my tea, and then suddenly from that side, um, and very shockingly, I hear them, somebody say, Patrick, did you hear you're an elder? So I looked at them, I'm like, I don't know any of these guys. How would they know I'm an elder? Um, I wanted to deny you guys, but I was a bit, I was better. <laughs> I, I agreed, I was an elder. Uh, and so they said, oh, okay, do you preach? I said, yes, I do. Um, and then I sat down for the meeting. So as the meeting went on, uh, it was quite a tension-filled meeting. But as it came to the end, and the MD was wrapping up, I felt a nudge. You know how the Holy Spirit nudges you? Uh, and he told me, you know, this morning you woke up and said you wanted to testify of, of me. This is your opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> so as the MD is shutting down the meeting, I said, excuse me, can I pray? You know, they're the ones, I'm not the one who introduced myself as an elder in a church. I'm not the one who said, I preach. It's them. So the minute I said, can I pray? I think, not I think, the Holy Spirit had set the stage. Of course, they couldn't say you can't pray. Preachers usually pray. And you know, I felt as I was saying, can I pray? I was in the boardroom of the board of directors. And I thought, this is where the authority of this organization rests. So I am going to proclaim the name of Jesus in this organization. And I proceeded to pray a very serious prayer. It wasn't, uh, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now. Amen. No, I prayed and proclaimed the name of Jesus in that meeting. I spoke Jesus over the MD the CFO, the HR manager, the transaction advisor, the whole place, I, I, I spoke of Jesus. Now that is how the helper helps you testify about Jesus. But remember where it started. In the morning, I had told my faith, please pray. I want to go and be present for Jesus. I was telling the helper, help me to testify. And that is what I want you guys to walk away from this meeting with. He is there, ready to help you, but you must go to him for help. He is the spirit of truth, but he is also the spirit of God. 
There are a couple of verses there on this, but I want to read a few. 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Ephesians 4.30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit, that's God speaking, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Psalm 143:10, teach me to do your will for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Why do you need to understand that the Holy Spirit is God's spirit? 1 John, 4, 1, uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 reads this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and is now already in this world. And then verse 6 concludes by saying that we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Two weeks ago, we shared in the Lord's table, the Spirit of God testifies that Jesus took on the form of man and came into this world in the flesh. He was crucified. He died, resurrected, and conquered sin and death on our behalf. Now, you need to know that he's the Spirit of God because if you've ever encountered other spirits, and I'm sure guys here who've met other spirits will agree with me, those other spirits will never agree that Jesus came to redeem us and did indeed redeem us by his death and resurrection on the cross. So you need to know and understand that the Holy Spirit is from God because when you meet other spirits, then you know what to ask them. If somebody comes and tells you, I know God, ask him, did Jesus die on the cross? If it is not the Spirit of God, he will never agree with you. So you must, you must assimilate that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God because then all these other shenanigans in the form of powers and all are very easy to identify. You'll be able to discern false spirits as stated by John in 1 John 4 because when they confront you in whatever disguise, you'll pick them out like this. He's the helper. He's the spirit of truth. He's the spirit of God. And the last attribute I'm looking at is that he is holy. John 1.33, John 1.33 says, I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon who you see the Spirit descending 
and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Acts 2, 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this to which you now see and hear. Please note that he is the Holy Spirit, not a Holy Spirit. Do you see the difference? He's the Holy Spirit, not our Holy Spirit. There is only one, the Holy Spirit. There are many other spirits out there who masquerade as power barons. But the Holy Spirit is only one. And why is that significant? Because of the word holy. What does holy mean? Guys, you'll be shocked if you try and Google what does holy mean. There's a general understanding among theologians. I found this completely fascinating, that they actually can't quite agree what the word holy means. So if I ask you what does holy mean, what would you say? There are probably as many answers as we are sitting here. So for our purposes this morning, you will have to work with my definition of holy, because I'm the one speaking. Holy means being perfectly separate from evil. Perfectly separate from evil. In fact, holy means unable to be evil. God cannot be evil. It's impossible for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to be evil. Because he's holy, everything about God, all his actions are holy. They are devoid of evil. When Satan came and convinced Eve that she could eat from that tree, Satan, in fact, was telling Eve that God is unfair to stop you from eating from that tree. But because God is holy, he's unable to be unfair because unfairness is evil. One other says this, we must accept by faith the fact that God is holy even when trying circumstances make it appear otherwise. To complain against God is in effect to deny his holiness and to say he is not fair. In the 17th century, Stephen Shannock said, it is less injury to him to deny his being than to deny the purity of it. The one makes him no God, the other a deformed and lovely and a detestable God. He that saith God is not holy speaks much worse than he that saith there is no God at all. Can you imagine that? You're better off saying there's no God than say God is not holy. Because God cannot not be holy. So for our context, the Holy Spirit, if I remove the word holy, the Holy Spirit is the unable to be evil spirit. 
because he is holy. Now this made me tremble a bit and I think you should be trembling. Let me tell you why. When I was preparing this message, I thought, okay, you said I'm God's temple, so he lives in me. Uh, God, you've told me the Holy Spirit is holy, so he cannot be evil. So what does that mean to me when I'm on the road and an evil thought like, how can I puncture the wheels of this matatu that has just crossed my path? Uh, how does that translate with holiness, with the Holy Spirit being in me? And even other worse things. You guys probably think worse things than me as far as that is concerned. How do you juxtapose holiness with evil thoughts? Habakkuk 1.3 says this, talking of God. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil. That God's eyes are so pure, they can't, they can't behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Because of his holy nature, God hates sin, doesn't tolerate it, does not overlook it, which is why, remember, being convinced of judgment. Sin always has dire consequences. And remember that judgment for sin is guaranteed at the end of the day. So the helper, and which is why now I want you to just uh, grab onto this word holy for yourself. The helper, the Holy Spirit, will help you to lead a holy life as demanded by God. But you must first submit to him. If you don't submit to the helper, there is no way you can be holy because fallen man, evil, wicked, only the helper, only the Holy Spirit can help you to be holy. And his primary role in John 16 is to teach us the truth, to teach us that he's of God so that we can see what is not from God, and to teach us that he is holy so that we can also be holy as he is holy, and to help us to testify of Jesus. So we come to the gifts of the Spirit. I'll soon be done. We are familiar with the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. I won't dwell on the, on the gifts, but what I want to say is this. The Holy Spirit did not intend his gifts to be used by us to make us spiritual superstars by exercising them. Their work, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, is to testify of Jesus so that lost souls can come to him for their salvation. Let me say that again. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are not for you to, to shine, to be a star. They are to help you testify of Jesus so that lost souls can be won back to Jesus. Therefore, whether it's a gift of prophecy or healing or miracles or discerning of spirits or tongues, whatever gift it is, the sole purpose of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are to testify of Jesus. They are not meant to draw crowds to your church as if coming to watch a football match so that guys can see what you do with these gifts. If the crowd will walk away only talking about the performance 
but not glorifying the name of Jesus and souls being won for Christ, it was all a facade. It was a wasted opportunity. And I want to emphasize again that there's something very wrong when the Holy Spirit gives you his gift and then you want to use it to be a superstar to draw crowds to you when the only superstar, as it were, think about it, the only superstar is Jesus. I read a nice illustration. If you go to some of the European cities with the big old castles that were once churches but are now museums, when you walk past them at night, they have all sorts of lights that shine from the ground towards the facade uh, of the cathedrals. And I mean, they really look nice when, if the lights are done well. So this writer says this, you know, if you went to that castle and stood there, maybe this is better, you stood there, and you're looking at the lights and saying, wow, what bright lights. The lights will tell you, it's not us. Look at the cathedral. And that's the same thing about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He gives it to you to be a light to shine the Lord Jesus, not for you. So if people are looking at you, then you've gotten it wrong. Remember Paul and Barnabas in Lystra when Paul healed a guy who was crippled from birth. He told him, rise up and walk. If you don't know that story, you miss Sunday school. Because that's one of the stories we were told at an early age. Now when people saw that miracle, they declared that Paul and Barnabas were gods and wanted to sacrifice to them. Paul and Barnabas cried out, tore their clothes, and told them, no, 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 we are mere mortals. We are just like you people. And that their preaching and their miracle was from God so that they could turn their lives to God. They were telling the people, don't focus on us, the lights. Focus on who we are pointing you to, and that is Jesus. And because at that point Jesus had left, it was the Holy Spirit in them who was helping them to be the shining lights of who Jesus is. So this morning, the Holy Spirit wants to dwell in you to testify for Jesus. That's his work. He wants you to hunger for him so that through him, working through us, we can testify of Jesus and bring lost souls to Jesus. That's his work. And that's who I want you to ask to come into your life if that's not how you've interacted with the Holy Spirit. But I want to come to a close ending with a warning by Jesus in Matthew 12, 31 and 32. And this same story is, uh, appears in Mark 3, 28 to 30 and Luke 12, 10. In Matthew 12, 31 to 32, we read this. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age 
or in the age to come. The passage in Mark has an, a good addition at the end where he says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. And this is the addition. Because they said he has an unclean spirit. The NKJV titles these passes the unpardonable sin. So what had happened here, and the story starts in Matthew 12, 22, is a demon-possessed man was brought to Jesus. He was blind and mute. And Jesus had healed him. Then the crowds marveled by asking whether Jesus could be the son of God, the son of David. The Pharisees, on hearing this in verse 24, replied saying, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Beelzebub was a Philistine deity. And then Jesus spoke of this unpardonable sin. Now this is the warning for us. The Holy Spirit is a helper. He is the spirit of truth. He is the spirit of God. He is holy. This is who he is. The scary warning that Jesus gives here is that daring to give the Holy Spirit any other attribute that would deny his person is blasphemous and will not be forgiven. He must be the Holy Spirit. In Leviticus 10, 1 to 3, we read the story of two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, or Nadab and somebody said Abihu. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took, remember Aaron was a priest, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had commanded, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all people, I must be glorified. The title Holy Spirit is not a suggestion. It is a hallowed and sacred name. So be warned. Now let me tell you what scared me more about this story. And I hope it will scare you. In Matthew 12, 25, we read that Jesus' response to the Pharisees came not because he had them say that he was from Beelzebub, not because he had, but because he knew their thoughts regarding the Holy Spirit. They didn't need to utter their profane words aloud. And that is serious food for thought for me, and I think it needs to be for you. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit does not happen only when you speak it out. It could also happen when you think it. So watch your thoughts. Don't think those bad things about the Holy Spirit. As I come to an end, I know I've talked about a warning, but this is what I feel the Holy Spirit wanted 
me to share with each one of us today. And it comes from the Song of Songs, uh, chapter 2, verse 8 to 13, and Song of Songs, chapter 4, 12 to 15. Then KJV titles, chapter 2, The Beloved's Request. The Shulamite. The Shulamite is the woman of Jerusalem. And the Shulamite um, referred to um, a perfect woman from Jerusalem. You couldn't get better than this one. So she says this, The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He is looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. Then she says, My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. I feel that the Holy Spirit this morning wants you to be smitten by him as the maiden here, the Shulamite woman, was smitten by her lover, and he's asking you to accept him as your only lover, and that you stop looking for other lovers who will only lead you astray from him. He wants you to come away with him and be intimately engaged with him because he deeply loves you and wants a deep relationship with you. 21 years ago, and some, years, and some months now, I went to my maiden faith, my faith, and I asked her to come away with me. Fortunately, she thought I was a gazelle <laughs> and a young stag, and she agreed. And for these many years, we're still going away. We are still coming away. Now, that is the serenade the Holy Spirit wants to make to each one of us this morning. And that is what I want you guys to walk away with. He's serenading you. He's saying, come away. Come away with me. And then Song of Songs 4, 12 to 15. The Holy Spirit, the stag, is now describing his beloved. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up. A fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits. Fragrant hina with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh, and aloes, with all the chief spices. A fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. If you remember the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, our lover, the Holy Spirit, wants us to be that fragrant garden that he'll be pleased to dwell in. And that garden is you. You are his Shulamite. His fruits, love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the pleasant fruits of songs, chapter 4, 12 to 15. They are fragrant and attracting all to him. They are wells of living water, giving life to everyone who receives them. And those are the fruits the Holy Spirit has planted in you, and he desires them to come out in this way. Worship team, please come up. If the Holy Spirit is in you because you're his temple, what fragrance are you emitting? What fruits are in the garden? Pomegranates, fragrant hina, cinnamon, saffron, kindness, goodness, gentleness. What fruits are they? If you are a little stinky, would you allow the Holy Spirit to uproot the stench and replant you with his chosen fruit? I want to end with the words of Smith Goldsworth. I'm always going back to him. I, I love him. To explain how you can become this fragrant garden. Smith says this. I have come to a conclusion that is very beautiful in my estimation. I once thought I possessed the Holy Spirit. But I've come to the conclusion that he has to entirely be the possessor of me. God can so reserve you for himself that your entire body will be operating in the Spirit. Never take advantage of the Holy Spirit, but allow the Holy Spirit to take advantage of you.